outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and today in the show, we are exploring the highs, lows, and lessons learned from my first experience bow hunting whitetails in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., with the one and only Taylor Chamberlain. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today, as I just mentioned, we are going to dive into my hunt earlier this year in Washington, D.C. Yep, that's right. I was out there hunting in the neighborhoods, the suburbs of our nation's capital. And I was out there with Taylor Chamberlain, who I will give you some more details on here shortly. But first, let's recap what this hunt was all about. Uh... You, you likely, maybe, if you've listened to some of our past episodes, you might understand what I've been up to this fall. But let me recap just in case you missed those. Uh, I'm filming a new show for Meat Eater this year that is about whitetail hunting across the country and the different unique traditions and styles and cultures of pursuing these critters that we all love, but in wildly different places and in wildly different ways across the country. And the first of those was this DC hunt. Now I'm filming this year. The show is going to come out next year. Um, I'm four episodes in at this point. And now I want to kick off this recap series of podcasts where I'm going to go through each one of those hunts with the special guests that I visited with, with some of my camera crew that was out there with me and recap what I did, what we experienced in these different places, what I learned along the way, um, and then, you know, how the hunts themselves went. And here's the thing about this year. This year has really been about learning. Uh, for a long time, uh, I've been doing this podcast and I've, I've traveled a decent bit, right? But, but most of my stuff is in the Midwest. Most of my stuff is, you know, your standard tree stand or tree saddle hunting, you know, figuring out how deer relating to agricultural land, yada, yada, yada. And that's great. That's fun. I love doing that. But at the same time, I know there's a lot of different other ways out there that people are hunting. And I know there's a lot of you listening who come from different regions of the country. And you've probably been listening to these shows and thinking to yourself, man, yeah, that's interesting, but it's not like what I do here at home, or it's not like the deer I hunt here, or it's not like this other place I go. And I wanted to 
try to put myself in a better position where I could understand where you're coming from, where I could understand and have some degree of context, some experience that would help me relate better to folks that are hunting in the cities or help me relate better to people that hunt in the South or help me understand what folks are up against hunting up in the upper Northeast or these different parts of the country. So, so that's why I did what I did this year. That's why I want to take on this new project. And the gist of each episode is this, I go to some different unique region and I meet with an expert in hunting in that place and explore both the culture of this location and this unique way that this expert hunts. So in this first episode, this first story I'm going to tell you guys, it's all about hunting in the suburbs. It's all about hunting in cities. It's about bow hunting in tight quarters in neighborhoods surrounded by people. And a guy who's really made a name for himself in that is Taylor Chamberlain. Taylor lives outside of D.C. He has started a really popular YouTube series. He has, you know, he's got a podcast. He's got a social media handle where you can follow along and learn everything he's doing out there. Hunting deer almost every day of the year and getting it done in tough situations. So he was a guy who right away, when I decided that I wanted to learn how people hunt in these city environments, he was the guy I knew I had to go talk to. And that's exactly what we did. In early October, I flew out there to Virginia, met up with Taylor, and uh, and had a heck of a hunt. So today, that's the story I want to share with you. I'm excited to to hopefully pass along some lessons learned here. There's some things I learned. There's some strategy elements that we're going to get into. We're going to discuss you know, how to get permission on properties like this. We're going to talk about how to actually find deer in these places, how to hunt deer without spooking them, some tips on shooting deer, recovering deer, a lot of different practical things like that. And then also discuss some of the maybe less expected um, elements that go into this kind of hunt. So uh, it's interesting. I'll tell you what, I have been on the road almost nonstop since October. Um, I haven't been home for more than about a week. Uh, Otherwise, it's been go, 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 gone for a week, home for a week, gone for a week, home for a week, gone for two weeks, home for a week. Uh, So I am absolutely tanked. I don't think I've ever been so worn out uh, and exhausted from a season of hunting. But I'm hoping that the end result, these stories, these experiences, this show that we're putting together, I hope that this end product is something that you guys are really going to enjoy and that you're going to be able to learn from. And uh, it's going to be worth the uh, the long days and nights out there. So without further ado, let's get to it. I uh, I've got Taylor Chamberlain here with me. And I also have Justin Michaud, who is one of my cameramen on this shoot. He's been on some of our past episodes, too, so you'll probably recognize him. Hope you enjoy it. Here we go. All right. With me on the show today, I have my partners in crime from the recent adventure of sorts on my Washington, D.C. suburbs hunt. I'm here with Taylor Chamberlain and Justin Michaud. Taylor, Justin, thanks for getting back on here with me. Hey, man, thanks for having us. You know, we have to be careful saying partners in crime when we're talking about urban hunting. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. There were no crimes committed in the urban huntingness that we did. I know, but but that that kind of... There were cops that showed up. I was going to say, it's like a little too (laughs) close to the truth. (laughs) Yeah, man, but you're you're skipping right to the ending, Justin. Oh, sorry. Oh, man. But but yes, uh, that is a really good way to set this whole thing up because 
this was a memorable hunt in a lot of different ways, both from the hunting and some of the extracurricular activities that happened throughout uh, and, and a number of other things. So what I was hoping you guys could help me do here it <clears throat> is recap kind of the whole story of the week, what we did, what we learned. Taylor, I'm hoping we can kind of dive into some of the how-to stuff that you were sharing with me that I found really helpful. Um, Justin, I'm hoping you can kind of help fact check me and, and help me as we walk through the story of our kind of our, our on our own hunts and uh, kind of lay out, uh, lay out the journey, lay out this crazy experience that was my first real suburban, you know, in a big city hunting experience. So, uh, that's, that's the game plan. Are you guys down for that? Yeah, it sounds great, man. And, and first off, thank you for coming to the burbs and, uh, getting to experience it because I really feel like, and you can speak to this, but you get an idea of what it's like. And even if you watch, you know, some of my videos or some of the content that's out there, you're even stuff where it's not, revolving around me hunting just urban hunting in general you kind of get an idea about what it's like but then to experience it is totally different would you say that's a fair and accurate statement oh dude it is so so true (laughs) so true because what you see on the videos what you see is is nothing but well not entirely but it's mostly just like the the simple fun part, the sitting in the tree, the watching the deer, the shooting deer, um, what you don't see when you watch videos like yours or seek one or anyone else like that is, is all the work around the edges, all the relationship building, all of the dealing with all the different weird logistical challenges, um, all the different pressures that the suburban environment puts on you. Um, the, the, the feeling is just entirely different than you can pick up in a TV show and entirely different than, you know, I could even imagine going into it. Uh, would you, Justin, is that, would you agree with that being another guy that was new to this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I'm, I'm used to, you know, it's always a little bit nerve wracking trying to gain permission places and, but you know, doing it in farmland where it kind of feels like home, um, you know, it, definitely gives you a bit of a different approach but yeah just rolling into the city and and uh just realizing like this is where we're gonna hunt it just felt like extremely wrong (laughs) (laughs) definitely different um so here here i'll set i'll set the stage for what our plan was going into the week the idea was this we were going to show up, me, Justin, uh, the other camera guy, Chase, who couldn't be with us here tonight, and we were going to arrive, meet up with you, Taylor, in like the on in the National Mall, right downtown Washington, D.C., spend a, I don't know, half a day or a day kind of just picking your brain about how you got into this kind of hunting and why you love suburban hunting and, you know, just just kind of a deep dive into the whole world and culture of this way of getting outside and doing stuff. And then... From there, we were going to spend, uh, I think it was a half day, our plan was to actually go out and do a hunt with you. So I was going to tag along with you, follow along, see what you do, understand what your gear is that you use, how you handle you know, getting into a property. We we're going to go and chat with a landowner about this whole situation and what they thought about meeting with you and all that. 
And then after that whole kind of setup period where I was learning from you and chatting with landowners and kind of getting my head wrapped around this whole idea, then I was going to have three days to go hunt on my own and try to figure this whole thing out. And oh, by the way, also try to get my own permission by knocking on doors too. So that was, that was the plan for the week. Um, we showed up that first day. I don't know if there's much worth touching on on that first day where we kind of toured downtown. It was fun to get to kind of see. I hadn't been to Washington, D.C. since I was a little kid. So it was fun to see everything again. I think the most notable thing was that, Taylor, you and me sat down on some benches to do an interview. And all of a sudden, you're like, dude, what is that stench? And we looked down and like, oh, <laughs> someone's been pissing all over these benches. <laughs> That's what stands out to me about yeah. that day. Yes, that was fun. Uh, when we sat down, it was pretty obvious that we were sitting in a uh, homeless person's restroom. So that's never, <laughs> never fun in <laughs> downtown. Uh, it's always kind of cool to to like see DC proper and um, and walk around and kind of realize like the history and the power uh, that reside in DC. And we got to see a Netflix special being filmed too. But yeah, other than that, not much memorable. Now, a, a lot of people that come in from out of town, uh, they, they seem to be surprised by the topography of Northern Virginia, D.C., like the metropolitan area. Uh, I was expected to see like the rolling hills or was it did you expect something different? No, I, I would agree with that. I was especially, you know, we saw downtown and then we crossed the river into Virginia and started driving almost immediately into some very deery looking spots. Like right away, I was like, oh, now I, I can understand why deer would be here. And you're right. It was a lot of rolling hills, really kind of steep, thick ravines, lots of good cover. Um and, and yeah, just a ton of nooks and crannies and crevices where you could see deer holing up and living. Um, would you agree with that, Justin? Yeah, yeah for sure. It was it was right away I could see there being deer. And, and what, that first, I guess it was that afternoon, I think we went and we went and chatted with one of the homeowners that you hunt on her property. We kind of picked her brain about, you know, how deer have become a problem for her, why she was interested in having someone come hunt her land. Um, Taylor, is there anything on that front that maybe is worth kind of, you know, let me take a step back here. We kind of jumped right into the story, but one thing we didn't really cover was why this kind of hunting is, is important or why is it worth considering? Um, and I'm curious, I think of this because when we went and chatted with this landowner, you know, she was sharing with us, how she was experiencing this problem with there being too many deer in her area and why someone like you helping out was a service to her. So I'd be curious if Taylor, you could expand on, you know, how hunting in urban areas like this can help solve other people's problems. But then also, can you give us a little bit of your spiel on why you like doing this so much? Like, why is this also a great thing for a hunter? Yeah, well, so, um, you know, the deer, present different to different individuals based on you know those individuals certain circumstances and and uh kind of outlook on everything but generally speaking our area has an insane overpopulation of white-tailed deer and to the point where they're unable to quantify how bad the overpopulation is so the the average carrying capacity uh, according to the state biologists, of how many deer should be in our area, 
because I mean, we have relatively like mediocre hardwoods, right? There's really, there's no ag, there's no supporting brows other than just woody brows and, um, and landscaping, which we can touch on later. But I mean, basically the, the carrying capacity in our area is 10 to 12 deer per square. Um, how many deer that when they do a study, they can't count them. They get them mixed up. It literally looks like you kick the anthill. And their best guess is that they're 420 to 425 square mile. So, you know, you had met rolling hills pockets, and that's exactly right. They're, they're pockets where there are just so many deer, it's insane. And they are eating everything. They've decimated their brows to the point where if you get down, and I don't know if you guys even noticed this or we kind of talked about it, but if you get down at like five feet, six feet, or four feet even, and you look, you can see as far as the topography will let you because the deer have eaten everything that they're able to get their mouths on, whether it's palatable or not. Um, so they destroy landscaping. They, they cause a lot of issues with you know, people wanting to plant stuff. You really can't plant anything. Uh, and they cause a huge danger to motorists and people on the on the roadways. So, uh, why is that great for bow hunters? Well, you know, we've taken mediocre habitat, and with urban sprawl, we've replaced it with lush, fertilized grass and landscaping and stuff these deer can eat on. And we've taken away, I'm doing air quotes now, but the traditional hunting habitat. And we've replaced it with these subdivisions and homeowners associations. And because of that, people are not comfortable hunting in those environments. And it, it really creates a lot of hunting opportunity in a very target-rich environment, hence the 420-plus deer per square mile, for people that want to climb a tree and shoot stuff with a bow and arrow. So is there a lot of red tape around it? Absolutely. Is there... Uh, it, a lot of barriers to entry and, you know, laws that you need to read through and kind of navigate these landmines through a hundred percent. However, if you do it, you are rewarded with an endless deer season where you can hunt 365 days a year and shoot as many antlerless deer as you want. And, um, the absolute icing on the cake for me is like, I'm a big guy. But even I can't eat all the deer that I shoot in a year. And so we're able, as hunters, to take these deer and feed the homeless with them and you know just take them to a butcher, drop them off. The butcher processes them. There's no fee to the hunter. And that food goes to food banks and people in need. So it's a really fantastic use of an overabundant resource to help people that need it. Yeah. It's it's. It, like you said, it's a win-win. It's a win for hunters. It's a win for landowners. It's a win for the habitat out there. It's a win for the deer population to become at least hopefully a little bit in more in balance. Um, so, so let's rewind back to where I kind of was triggered this idea, which was going to this homeowner's place. And we visited with this gal, this, this, this woman and her husband and kind of heard their story. And this setup kind of paint a picture is just a really nice, really nice big home with a couple acre grassy yard. And these folks probably owned, I don't know, what is it? Three acres, maybe Taylor, something like that with maybe two acres or 
acre and a half yard yep. and then an acre and a half of woods kind of edging around it, kind of dropping down a little yep. point. Um, and they had, I don't know, there were some oak trees. There was some landscaping. Uh, while we were up there talking to the owners, there were deer feeding in the yard on, I can't remember what they're feeding on, but they're feeding on something. Um, that kind of place, you know, a big yard, a little bit of woods, butting up into a little bit larger section of kind of scattered timber and stuff. Is that kind of the average kind of place you hunt Taylor? Or if not, can you kind of paint a picture for people of the types of places that you might hunt in a suburban environment like this? Absolutely. So that, that piece of property was, uh, in a nutshell, exactly like my typical standard property. So in Northern Virginia, pretty much every bit of developable land has been developed. There are no pieces or I'm never going to say never, but there are very few, if any, pieces of ground that are subdividable to the point where you can build a lot of houses on them. Basically, farms or properties that you would want to seek out and hunt. The areas that are left over are areas that are undevelopable. So the property that we were hunting had a point that dropped down into some woods that that property owner doesn't own but a lot of deer bed in there and come up into their field. Well, there's a big Creek in there and that's why you can't build houses there. So that's a very typical property that I hunt or uh, maybe like a Creek bottom or a floodplain that's between a bunch of houses. And if you kind of look at an aerial map and look from like a 15,000 foot view, you can start to see these floodplains and see these, these undeveloped areas between all these houses. And, and for a guy like me, who's been doing this for a long time, you can, to me, that looks like a roadmap, right? That's where I'm seeing deer movement. And those are the areas that I'm keying in on and hunting a bunch. And that's my kind of standard area. So a yard or some, some little chunk of timber that backs into a Creek bottom or, you know, somewhat goes into places of where deer would bed or travel or feed. And, and at the end of the day, like that's what deer are doing. They're bedding for security, they're traveling and they're eating. Right. And they're not going to be in places that they can't do that uninterrupted or, or somewhat, um, without the ability to move somewhat freely. Yeah. So, so let's dive into that a little bit further. Taylor, because that first day we showed up at this person's house, we chatted up for a while, and then we came back the next day to do this hunt. And as we were, basically, you were going to hunt, I was going to follow behind you and climb up in a tree with you and, and just watch what you do and, and kind of pick your brain and all those things. As we were going through all of that, you kind of ran through a couple key concepts or like really, really important things that are unique to hunting in suburban environments. Um, can you kind of walk us through what you think those very most important things are when it comes to hunting in an urban environment like this? Like what stood out to me, I'm uh, just to put a couple things on your radar. Maybe you've got some other things you want to mention, but you kept talking about the bubble. You were describing something as the bubble and how important it was not to go inside the bubble. So that'd be something I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit more. And then another thing that stuck with me was you continued, you, you constantly discussed and talked about how deer within these areas kind of move like water flows through a stream. 
And, and that was helpful for me as I was thinking about where should I set up in these kinds of zones or how should I think about how deer will move between this yard and that yard and this clearing and this thicket. Um, those are two things that stood out to me. Could you expand on those two? And then if you remember any of the other important things that we walked through on that first kind of trial run, um, kind of the main, most important how to's of hunting these places from your perspective. Yeah, for sure. So the bubble is the most important aspect of successfully hunting urban deer and really deer in general. I think you can apply what I refer to as the bubble very effectively to, but I mean, basically deer are very, very good at adapting uh, to a new area and, and kind of surviving. And they know exactly where the humans go and where they don't go. So using the same property that we're talking about, there's a grassy field, or we call it a field, it's a septic field. You know, it's probably 80 yards long, maybe 100 yards long by 35 yards wide, 40 yards wide, drops down into a creek bottom. Well, those deer know that those homeowners, they might come out there on the deck, they might move around a little bit and you know, like what you were talking about before, when we stood on the deck, those deer were feeding right there. No problem. Now, if we had walked down off the deck and walked towards them, they would have run off because we would have entered kind of their bubble. And the, the same thing is true where those deer know that if you're up in the yard, you're fine. If you enter the woods, well, that's rare. Like not a lot of people are entering the woods here. Now we've triggered their, their predatory prey type response and they're going to go they're going to get out of there. So it's very important to figure out where those deer think that bubble is or where the human interaction bubble is and try to get as close to the edge of it without intruding too far into it to trigger that response, but still get yourself in a position where you're able to shoot a deer. And so that comes from doing your scouting, doing your homework, figuring out how those deer are moving and that's where we were talking about kind of like these deer move like water where, you know, they're going to move through an area that has the path of least resistance to them, just like water does. And I think you and I were talking about how you're a big fisherman and that really resonated with you because it's the same way that you look at deer moving or excuse me, fish moving uh, or feeding when they're mm-hmm. kind of waiting behind a boulder or whatnot. Right. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, I, I like to look at a property from an aerial view and make a educated guess as to how I think deer are going to move to these connected areas because the deer kind of like to run a circuit. The deer are always getting bumped around They're You know, it might be because the landscapers are out or it might be because, you know, the dog's off leash and running after them or something spooked them, whatever it is. They, they seem to kind of always be moving through their home range and that home range is pretty large. Um, and so what they're doing is they're, you know, if you look from above and you can see those connected chunks there, that's where deer are going to flow much like a water pipe or a Creek or however you want to, um, think about it yourself to, to, you know, make that analogy stick. But I like to think of it like water and I try to find where that water is flowing and, and get to a spot where, I can do my homework, get permission, and and then get in there. Um, and that's where doing your homework and trying to figure out where that bubble is is the next best thing. I think that a lot of people try to dive in 
and find a spot that they think looks really deery or a spot that, you know, traditionally is where you would hunt. And that's where they go wrong because by the time you get to the tree that's quote unquote deery, you've blown those deer out of it. Like those deer are sitting there, they're watching you. As soon as you cross through their bubble, they're gone. And I think a really good example of that was where we actually hunted that first night, right? Because we talked about our access and how we walked in there. I knew where the deer were bedding. I knew what they could see and what they couldn't see. And we picked a tree that was right on the edge of the yard, overlooking that point where we thought those deer were, were going to come up the point into the yard. Um, and that spot probably didn't look good traditionally for you guys being normal hunters. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not normally looking for a tree inside a yard. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I would, uh, I would have wanted to go further down that point probably. Um, but your point is, your point is a good one about understanding the bubble. And, and that really ended up being pretty key the whole week when you would see what these deer learn to accept and what they learn not to accept and being right on that side, right there in the edge of the yard allows you to, you know, not go past and into their danger zone. Um, so yeah, I mean, it made sense once you described it and then well, shoot. I mean, we climbed up in that tree and it, it kind of worked in a lot of ways, kind of just how you would expect it to uh, both the good and the bad. I mean, I think that <laughs> night you described it as kind of the perfect example of what an urban hunt can be like, right? Yeah. I mean, we got, we walked in, uh, to the sound of mowers and just ripping. I mean, there were lawnmowers everywhere and there were a couple houses away. And I thought that was because I figured it was going to push the deer over towards us. And the, you know, Again, the deer know their bubble. They are very comfortable with people mowing grass and blowing leaves. I really try to go in for an afternoon hunt when I know the landscapers are there. Um, the deer really like to eat uh, grass that have had leaves on top of them that are freshly blown off. Like they will run in after landscapers leave uh, that have just finished blowing leaves. So I try to keep their schedules and know when they're going to come by. And I try to donate a lot of deer to those different uh, employees of those places so that they'll tell me when they're going to properties that they know I hunt, try and create some incentive for them to let me know um, when they're going and kind of build some camaraderie and team teamwork there. But um, we walked into a lot of mowers blowing, which was great cover. We climbed up. Uh, we, we took a path that we probably, most people wouldn't take. We kind of hung around the the side of the property and kept some bushes between us and where we expected the deer to be bedding. And, uh, most people probably walk right down the middle of that yard. And then we climbed a tree right on the edge and, uh, you know, Justin, you guys got set up and we thought we were (laughs) in good shape. And then mowers got closer and closer. And then we saw some guys cutting grass (laughs) on the neighboring (laughs) property, uh, riding their mower up and down. And then finally they stopped and almost as soon as they stopped, the deer started moving. Yeah. It it seemed like that was going to be the dinner bell. The the mower stopped. You spotted, I I think it was you who spotted some deer down the bottom and then they started moving our way. 
and they were kind of heading up this there was a couple little ditches of sorts or kind of draws that were on either side of this yard and you described how likely these deer would either come right up the point or move across the edge of one of these drainages across in front of us you and i were sitting in a tree together and they started going that way and then well, what happened there did they just, was that when they were coming our way and then something spooked them and they ran off was that a, was that that encounter yeah. they just spooked out of nowhere uh they were I mean, pretty close to being in green light, string dump territory. Um, they, <laughs> they were, they just needed to come cross out from some bushes. Um, and I think Justin, you probably had the best view of them based on your angle and where they were working. But for whatever reason, they just turned inside out, and they were behind the bushes. Like they clearly did not see us. Um, maybe the thermals started dropping. I mean, that was pretty close to sunset, uh, so it's possible, but. They got the heck out of Dodge uh, and, and blew out of there. And that's, again, a really good example of, of how the deer react when their bubble is breached, right? I mean, those deer did not question it. They, you know, a lot of people assume that because you're hunting in the suburbs, you can get away with a lot of human scent. Well, the, the deer are used to smelling humans, but they're smelling the humans that and so when they smell them and then they get that visual identification, they're like, okay, I smell Mr. Johnson on his porch. That's fine. Well, if they get a really strong sniff of human and they have no idea where, where that human is, that's what triggers them into a very you know, predatory prey type response. And they'll, they'll booger exactly like those deer did. Um, and I thought we were done for, but then we had a, a handful of deer come from where they really should not have come from, which was between the two houses where the mowers had just been. So who knows if, if those deer had gotten kicked up or something uh, from the from the neighbors, but they circled around and uh, almost got shot off, but they were like 33, 34 yards out and uh, just we weren't going to send it at dusk at 34 yards on a super alert doe. So... Uh, sometimes the best shot that you can take in the suburbs is not taking the shot because, um, you know, and we talked about this some, but hunting small properties, marksmanship is, is key. Yeah. I mean, that, that was one of the most important things that you impressed upon me was just how, you know, there's, there's no room for error when you're bow hunting in the suburbs because any little mistake, anything that's not a perfect shot can lead to a lot of challenges. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood 
in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. You kind of ran me through some rules, some things that you you know, you do when it comes to like choosing the kinds of shots you'll take in this environment. You even talked about some gear considerations. Can you walk me through that stuff, what those how you think about max range or the types of shots you take and and all that, how's that unique in this environment? Absolutely. So the difference between a deer running 40 yards and piling up and a deer that's running 150 yards and piling up is night and day. That's the difference between a quick recovery back to your truck, awesome morning or evening hunt and knocking on three, four, five doors, you know, eventually finding your deer, getting yelled at by all those homeowners, and then eventually losing permission on the property that you hunted from. Um, so it's it's important that you're not just ten ringing deer. You're hitting them in the twelve ring, and you're putting them down absolutely as fast as possible. Uh, I do not shoot deer unless they are broadside or slightly quartered away, and I do not shoot deer unless they are under twenty yards. Sometimes if there's a deer that is super calm and the conditions are perfect and I'm reading her body language, I might shoot one at like 22 or 25 yards max, but I will never, ever, ever shoot a deer and not use my top pin. Um, just because there is a lot of stuff that can happen between a deer at 18 yards and a deer at 32 yards. Can I make that shot? Absolutely. I'm a bow nerd. I shoot at long distances all the time. I have like a absolutely, you know, insane tuning process, et cetera. But it's just imperative that the deer that you shoot, you hit right at the top of the heart, you take out their lungs and they, they run 15 yards and pile up. Um, and for that, I'm shooting an insanely heavy arrow. Well, not insanely. I'm shooting a 565 grain arrow. And I'm shooting a very large cut on contact broadhead because what I'm trying to do is blow through the absolute top of that heart. If I can take out some of that front landing gear, I love to do that. So they snow plow instead of running dead on their feet. Um, and it's just very important to, to get the deer down as fast as possible. There are even some properties that I hunt where I will put on a giant 
expandable broadhead because I know that I'm only going to be taking a 12 yard shot and I'm not going to be hitting any bone. And I need to put that giant Coke can sized hole through the deer as opposed to a smaller fixed blade type chunk. Yeah. And, and that, that whole line of, um, this whole lesson, I guess, is is definitely one that stuck with me coming out of this hunt um, as I had some experiences along these lines that proved a lot of what you discussed to be true. Um, but that night, I mean, you didn't take the shot in that doe. She was a little too far to range, and that was that was it. And it was a good lesson for us to learn to see you pass up a shot there when she, you know, it looked like a great opportunity, but to your point, not a risk worth taking. Um Justin, what did you think about that first hunt? Seeing Taylor's setup, seeing Taylor's way of going about things. Uh, did anything stand out uh, on that whole thing, either with what he did or how the whole thing went? Well, it's it's interesting because, like you know, in our typical hunting scenarios, there's like tip, you know, we go into it knowing like we want to make an ethical shot. We want to like do our due diligence, um, to put this animal down quick, but there is a level of, um, angst that, that I felt going into these situations like that first night hunt. I mean, you, you have to break these properties down at such a micro level that it's, uh, I mean, it is like next level really, because, you know, if I go hunt, a 50 acre piece and I have some timber and I know they're going to uh food, uh, ag field over here or a food plot or whatever. There's always like a, a, some padding, you know? And when we went in that first night, it, you know, it was great because we, we had the blessing of these people to be able to hunt there and hearing their story and knowing like one, like these are, real people's like daily lives that are being like, you know, pretty, pretty heavily interrupted, um, by the deer, which I don't experience that in my day to day. So like, it's a huge problem. So you're, you're really doing a a good thing for these people. And so going into their yard and knowing like, okay, well this, like they have our back here. Um, and, but then when you get back there, it's like, while I, th- I thought it'd be easy, you know, like we're standing there talking, these deer at like 20 or 30 yards, like feeding, they're looking at us like at home, th- no way, you know? And, um, but you, you have like a three acre piece that is like mostly mowed lawn and a house, but there's such a micro level that this whole process has to be out because like Taylor said, like you, you have to get in and you have to do that right. And even like the way we were set up that night, um, you know, I think we had three different trees, guys in three different trees and like the, those deer, uh, they did exactly what you thought they would do and using that terrain. But man, like, like you said, there was like zero tolerance for anything out of the ordinary, which, which was, pretty surprising to me i'm thinking like you know these people probably there's guys mowing all around us but and and that somehow seemed really normal to these deer but they come up and like i i really think what happened was at that time of night 
that we did have some thermal shift and it started to pull into that bottom. And there, there was deer coming from like two different directions. And there was one doe that just was like suit, like she just was on edge and she ended up like alerting everything. But man, it was just like looking at that. I mean, that little chunk was like not, not, you know, what a, a quarter of an acre and that was like the spot, you know? So it was cool to see like how fine tuned you have to be with your wind in a yard. That's like, you know, like just everything is so condensed, but, um, it, it's cool because it, it, it kind of takes it to another level because you don't have the wiggle room. Like one, you gotta like be on your game with your scent and understanding your, your wind and your thermals, but you also like have to, you know, like Taylor said, you can't be taking like 35, 40 yard pokes at deer like that, um, that are coming in just like expecting something to be like wrong, you know? Yeah. I think that, I think what you said, the fact that there's, there's, there's no padding, like there's no wiggle room that, that is I think the overarching theme of everything. Like there's no room for error, whether it be with how far you push in, whether that be with how long shots you take, whether that be with how you manage relationships. It seems like that, you know, it's just the little things really matter in this kind of hunting environment, Mm -hmm. which, uh, which brings us, I think kind of nicely to what we had to do the next day, which was this whole relationship side of things in a, to a degree. Uh, now that I got to hunt with you, Taylor, once it was now up to me to try to go and do it on my own and get my own permission to see if I could get my own permission. At least, um, you had some spots yep. that I could hunt, but I wanted to try to get my own spots too, to kind of have the whole experience. Um, so that morning we went over to your house and kind of walked through your best ideas, like your best practices for knocking on doors, for finding spots, um, kind of the Taylor Chamberlain approach to getting hunting permission. So I ran through that whole deal with you and then I took off on my own. You want to give us cliff notes on some of your hot tips for getting permission in these kinds of places before I discuss how my, uh, attempts actually went. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, in, in our area in Northern Virginia, people tend to be very abrasive. You know, it's the city, man. Like you're not, you you don't have this communal neighborhood where you're like really good buddies with your neighbors. Most people don't want you at their door. They don't know why you're there. And so to build rapport instantly, I mean, it's really no different than any other type of sales. You're just selling yourself instead of selling a product. Um, and so, you know, if you can try to build instant rapport, just try to communicate clearly. And the biggest key is to just not be intimidated. Like if you're confident in yourself and what you're saying, people will believe in you and they'll understand. And, and, you know, I try to not have emotional conversations with people about the deer because emotions you can't control on somebody. Um, you know, we all feel differently about lots of different things. And the three of us are very like-minded people on this call, but I'm sure that there are things that we could talk about that all three of us are very passionately, you know, opposed to how we feel about things, but you can't argue with facts. And so I try to very softly and not abrasively state my facts, 
interlineated with the service that I'm providing and explain why it's important. And, um, you know, I do that kind of Socratically by asking a lot of questions and just try to build rapport. And then also it's all relationship building. And, and I think you guys got to see some of the relationships that I've built uh, with these homeowners and the rapport that I have with them. And, you know, by doing that, you're able to then build kind of a referral based network and have the, the clients that you have reach out on behalf of you to their friends. And that's where getting permission like this really snowballs because even if you go knock on a thousand doors, you get to communicate clearly with those people, hunt them appropriately, provide a quality service for them. And, and I guarantee you 1000% guarantee you at some point very soon that homeowner will ask you, what can I do to thank you? And you say, Hey, just tell all your friends that, you know, what I'm doing and give them my number. To this day, I get more phone calls in a week of properties than I can hunt. And there are people asking me to come over and hunt their properties. Um, because somebody that I hunted on their property of told them about me and much like anything else in life, you know, a referral from somebody that is a trusted source carries an unquantifiable weight with it. You know, if, if you guys were somewhere and I said, Oh, Hey, you got to go try this, you know, Irish restaurant. You're going to go mm -hmm. there probably without even thinking about it. Right. You're just going to be like, Oh, Taylor said this place is awesome. Like I'm going to go there. And it's, it's no different with anything else, doctors and service providers. And, you know, I'm a service provider. I'm just, I'm more of an exterminator than a, than an attorney or a doctor, <laughs> but yeah, mm -hmm. you know, and it, service that's being provided that's that's needed so build rapport and and speak confidently and and know the facts know some data that supports your case uh because you can't argue with data you can't argue with math you can argue with feelings and you will lose that argument 10 times out of 10 yeah yeah that's uh that's a good way to kind of sum it all up taylor and, and i i tried to take the approach that I've used knocking on doors in more rural areas and and kind of combine that with some of the stuff you said. And a, a couple of things that stuck with me were the fact that you, you kept telling me to make sure you answer their questions before they have them and do it quickly. Like don't give them an opportunity to object before you're able to lay out the basic important things. You know, the basic important things being why you're there uh, how you're going to do this safely and what problem you're solving. I think if those are the main things I was trying to get across. Um, and I really tried yep. to try to distill it down into like a tight, short, quick and succinct kind of introduction and explanation. Um, sometimes when I'm knocking on doors in the middle of the country, you know, I think people out there prefer a little bit more winding approach. A lot of these people are like inviting you into their homes and asking you to have a bite to eat and, and they just want to talk to someone. Yeah, I didn't see that in DC. Yeah, <laughs> not, not in the city. No, people in DC, they wham, bam, thank you, man. We want it over. What do you? Why are you here? I mean, a lot of people will answer the door and say, "What do you want?" Yeah, and I'm like, "Hey, I'm Taylor. I live right down the street. I'm not selling anything. I, I, you know, I'm here to solve a problem for you for free. You're welcome. And, yeah, and act now because it's going away. Yeah, right? and <laughs> just trying to create some sort of incentive there to get their attention before they just think that you're some salesman or you're trying to get in their pocket. 
you know, when you ring somebody's doorbell, they are very defensive. You know, why are you here? What do you want? You're trying to get my money. You're trying to ask me for something. You're interrupting me at some point of my day. You know, they're, they're very much on their heels. And so I try to do a lot of things and you hit the nail on the head. I try to answer their questions before they ask them. And, and that makes somebody very confident when you do that, you know, like it's, it's really no different than any other sales type tactic. You're just selling yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so basically at, after you kind of ran me through all that stuff, we went through and looked on Onyx and just pinned a bunch of different houses that you thought had good potential or were in areas where you'd seen deer in the past and just some spots worth checking out. Um, and then I hit the road and, uh, it was like, I don't know, like a CIA covert mission or something. I had Justin and Chase in the van or in the SUV and we were driving like secret service, black, um, forward expeditions or something. And, uh, Chase and Justin had the cameras and then I was in the front seat driving around and I, I don't know how many pins I had, but I ended up, gosh, do you remember the number, Justin? I think it was something like 12 or 13 houses. 13. That, 13. Yep. Okay. 13. Yeah. So I ended up going up to and asking for permission at 13 places. Um, and I'll tell you the first thing that really stood out to me about these places and these neighborhoods that I was in was that not only are they kind of in the city and, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am type people, but like they were all almost all like mega mansions. Like I've never been, I don't think I've been in a place like neighborhoods where there's been such a concentration of, of wealth and big, huge homes, like just everywhere, like every little road you turn down, it's like mega mansion, mega mansion, mega mansion. You go down another way. Here's a whole nother slew of these places. You go down another road. There's, I mean, there's just everywhere. And some of these places are just like way back. Like you drive down some like quarter mile or half mile drive and gates here and gates there and security cameras everywhere. And then you come into this cul-de-sac, this a private cul-de-sac with fountains in the middle and like a private basketball court or basketball court. And I mean, I, I've never felt so uncomfortable in my life, Taylor, I think, as when I was pulling up to some of these people's houses and just thinking like, okay, at any point, like an armed guard is going to apprehend me or someone's going to be really upset that I'm back here. I mean, was it? It's very, it's very, and that's where a lot of people I think fall short is, you know, it, at the end of the day, it's a numbers game, right? And I can network and use my spiel and use the, you know, the knowledge that I've built over the last 12 plus years doing this, but or 14 years now, geez. Um, but there's just no substitute for, you know, trying to stay calm when you get those butterflies walking up to the door. Cause I still get them and you got to ask and you got to knock on the door. And the thing that I always tell myself when I'm at the driveway and I'm like trying to talk myself out of it, kind of that, that like devil on your shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder kind of thing is I just tell myself, Hey, the answer is already no. So you might as well ask and verify. Right. Because unless you ask, the answer will always be no. So F it. Maybe you get a yes. Let's go. Come on. Yeah. And and that's what I tell myself thousands of times a year to motivate me to go walk down and ring the gate doorbell and um, and try to get permission. And, you know, you just have to be comfortable being told a lot of things of, 
of no and all kinds of things about yourself that aren't true, or maybe they are, you know, but you're going to hear a lot of stuff and you just have to keep reminding yourself like, Hey man, the answer is going to be no, unless you ask. So let's, let's go verify it and, and like keep on keeping on. And, you know, the other thing to really consider, and I think we talked about this, but don't ever rule out a property. Don't ever go like, Oh, that property is so big and perfect. I bet, you know, they always get asked because I find that it's kind of like the really hot girls at the bar that everybody's so intimidated <laughs> by them. They're not talking. Right. And, and so, uh, of course that was a long time ago for me. Cause I've been in that situation. But, um, it, when there's a property that looks really, really, really good, go try. Because again, like the answer's no until you ask. And some of my best, best properties, I mean, humongous properties are ones that I thought there's no way this is going to work kind of scoffing at myself. And next thing you know, I'm like, Holy smokes. I can't believe I just landed a 200 acre HOA or, you know, whatever it is. Right. And a place that's just crawling with deer, And, and then I have to figure out which ones of my buddies I can bring in to help manage the place. Right. So, um, just never, ever, ever assume anything and go, have a conversation with people and I try to give them my phone number and just say, Hey, if anything changes, give me a call. Right. Because sometimes they'll call you back and they'll say, Hey, you know, I talked to my wife or I thought about it and, or I, I started noticing there are a ton of deer in my yard and please come shoot them all. So you, you just never know until you try. Yeah. I was with, I was with you though, Mark, cause, uh, nothing says don't talk to me, leave me alone. Like a, like, $10,000 gate and cameras hanging off of trees. Uh, I, the anxiety that you felt, I think I told you was like, it was just like oozing out of that car. <laughs> was like every, every door, every door you went to, I was like, Oh my gosh. I like it. I'm well, going to throw up for Mark. On top of it, because once you got permission, you then had to be like, Oh, by the way, these are my buddies with these really nice cameras and they need to come with me also. We need you to sign this whole other piece of paper now. Right. So that's like a whole other layer, um, that was tough. And we tried to kind of talk about some different angles of, of how to approach that as well in a productive way. But at the end of the day, like people are different and, and they have different reasons for wanting you to shoot deer. And you can never really assume either why they want you there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I would be willing to, to, to bet that every property owner that I have permission on either they or one person removed from them that they know has either had Lyme's disease or hit a deer with their car. And, mm-hmm. and those are a lot of the reasons that they're like, and again, we're back to how to get permission. That's factual. It's like, yeah, Susie had Lyme's disease or yes, like. Becky hit a deer with her car and totaled it or Jim did, you know, whatever. Like those are factual things. They, they happen. And those are things that point to overpopulation and, and what we're trying to, to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so I tried it and knocked on, like you said, Justin, 13 doors. Um, you said that the anxiety was palpable, Justin, um, what did you think about, I mean, you watched me do what I did. 
What did you think about how it went? What do you think about my spiel? Uh, what stood out to you about that whole experience? Well, that was the closest I've ever been to being in the Secret Service because <laughs> I had a cam- I had a camera on you, but I also had an earbud and and could hear every one of your conversations. Yep. And uh, you know, like when you got back in the car, I was like, dude, like I don't know how you're doing this, but if anybody could do this, like you're the guy because, um, you know, again, you you're immediately caught off guard because. You, you're like entering people's sanctuaries, you know? And then once you get up there, they are like, wait, how'd you get in here? Kind of. And, um, but you know, like as soon as you would start, uh, it was, it was just like great because you, and I'm sure Taylor's the same way. Like he, he has like worked up a speech that like he said, facts and, and you going into that, um, you just like, you, you knew what the, you you know, the issues that they're having, these homeowners are knowing the same thing. Um, and when you, when they rejected you or they said no, or, uh, like you were always like dead on with your, your responses. So I was like, I was, like I said, you were the guy to do that. Um, uh, I would have probably quit after the first no and just like found a McDonald's. Um, but <laughs> uh, like you, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was encouraging because, you know, in, in this outdoor world, we hear, you know, you, there's a lot of people that have voices in that, that can speak into this industry or or to our lifestyles that have no idea, uh, what, what it's like. And I think we were at the, some of those doors and it was great to, to hear like the openness that people you know, they would tell you no, but then you would have a chance to then um, explain what you were doing or why you were doing it. And then hearing their rebuttals and uh, their opinions and whatnot. Like, I really think that even though we got like a a lot of no's, um, we also were able to kind of, uh, you know, maybe plant some seeds of like, okay, like, you know, all these hunters are not the same, you know, and here is another way we could think about like possibly attacking a situation where, you know, my kid could get Lyme's disease in the yard. Like the the first lady said that she didn't want to have her grandkids over because she doesn't want them to have like have to play in a yard where there's ticks everywhere. Um, and so even though we heard some no's, like those might be yeses for Taylor, you know, and the future because of the conversations that you had. Again, I felt like it was super informative um, because there was a, a lot of the information you were giving out was like stuff that these people probably had never heard. So I, I thought it went really well, despite all the no's that we got. Really bring up a good point there, Justin, in that, you know, everybody, well, again, I don't want to generalize to say everyone, the majority of people that I talked to have never ever met a hunter before and so there are a lot of a lot of properties that i have permission on that started with a no and and i always will ask like well why you know do you mind if i ask why the answer is no because i mean now we're going down in flames right like the answer is no so we might as well push the envelope <laughs> and, why. and uh 
but I mean, and, and then when they say, well, because it's barbaric or something and you can say, well, you know, actually it's not, and you can have a counterpoint to it. That's, that's factual. And, you know, what you'll find out is that a lot of people have really no concept what hunting is about and they understand, you know, right now it's very common to be, you know, cognizant of what you're eating to maybe want to eat only organic stuff or grass fed or, you know, not have non-hormonal stuff. And you're going like, well, Hey, I'm sourcing organic protein, my family. Right. And, and so what's different than me going to whole foods and paying 40 bucks a pound for bison or me helping you remove these deer from your property and feeding my family with them. Um, it's hard to argue that. Right. And, and I've had many, many, many homeowners tell me, you know, once they get to know me, they'll say, you know, you're not what I expected. And I love asking them, like, what do you mean by that? I know their answer. They expect Elmer Fudd, right? They expect somebody that is, um, you know, the, the stereotypical hunter and not somebody that they'd want to hang out with and have a beer with and have a conversation with. And, um, you know, we're fortunate that we're getting to kind of change people's perception of, of hunters. And, and you hit the nail on the head that we're not all the same. Like, you know, we can be educated and still hunt. We can, you know, we can do this ethically and responsibly and um, in an appropriate manner that's beneficial for everybody. And it's really kind of cool to watch people who have never been exposed to hunting figure that out. Yeah. I, I felt the same way. And I felt like even, even with all those no's, I, I felt that at least I'll have an opportunity to be a positive light, to be, to be like, uh, one representative of the hunting community that they get to have some kind of engagement with. And if that can be positive or surprisingly better than they expected, uh, or intriguing, you know, I did something good there. So, so yeah, I mean, there was, there was a couple people who were, you know, that I talked to who were, you know, who described bad experiences they'd had with past hunters. Uh, there were a couple people who were just like hesitant about the whole thing in general. There was one person that I went and talked to where, where the husband answered the door and he was very dismissive of it. Like he was, he was probably the most, um, agitated that I was there and like, what do you mean? What, what, what are you doing here? There's no problem. Why? There's no, there's not too many deer. Just, he was like angry. I was there. Um, but then his wife came up behind him and she, uh, she was very different. She was like really curious about it. She kept asking questions and he was trying to like push her off, not physically, but I mean, he was trying to be, he was like, no, 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 this is fine. He's like, no, let's just, just, just have him get out of here. Stop asking these questions. And she's like, well, I'm kind of curious. Why, why do you do this? Or how do you do this? Or you do use a bow or this is legal. Or how do you guys, how do you guys manage these situations? And eventually he stormed out of there. But every once in a while, he'd like yell from the kitchen to like, just close the door. Just let's get back to what we're doing. He was very irritated. And she stood there and asked me questions for, I don't know, 15, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we ended up having, I think, a really productive conversation. And I think she left it, you know, having learned some stuff. And she was like thanking me. She's like, oh, this is really interesting. This is great to kind of learn about this. Um, and then there was a handful of people who were just kind of like, they didn't care. They're kind of like, you know, I, yeah, I'm fine. I'm, I'm fine with hunters, but I just don't want someone here to just be a bother. I don't want to worry about people around here. I've got a guy already that hunts here. Or, um, there was a handful of those types of things. There was a handful of people that just weren't home. Um, and there was, you know, 
handful that just said no, and that was it. Um, there was one guy who was on a phone call, and this is kind of like a, a longer story that I'll try to make short, but the night before, or two nights before, we had done like a drive around scouting, as you guys recall, and we had spotted one house with like five bucks, like I don't know, four or five, six bucks feeding in the front yard, including one like really nice one. And so I'd come back to knock on that door and that guy answered the door, but was on the phone and he kind of like waved me off. It's like, come back later. So I was excited to hopefully get permission there. Um, but ultimately I did get one. Yes. Um, there was a couple who were kind of leaving their home to go for a walk and I, I walked up their driveway as they were walking down and chatted with them and, and they were, they were the perfect, the perfect uh, culprits in that they were like, ah, yeah, shoot them all. We've got too many. They're a nuisance. They're trouble. Do whatever you need to do. Um, and they were fine with us filming and fine with us doing the whole deal. So, so I got the yes, one out of one out of thirteen. Um, but <laughs> I'll tell you, by the time like we got that part done, I mean, I was just like shot. I was emotionally exhausted. It just like there's a like an emotional debt that you accrue every time you go through like the hype up the walk to the door the knock on the door the talking the the yes or the no or whatever like every time you do that regardless of how it goes it was just like it was each one was a little bit more exhaustion a little bit more so after 13 of them i mean you 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 tell me if this is true or not justin but by the time we stopped for i guess it was like a late lunch we stopped for i mean i was just like a zombie I could hardly even like talk yeah. to anyone. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. Cause I felt the same way. Like I think being like hearing and, and just like the, the flow, you know, the up and down of all those conversations, it was just like, yeah, I, I didn't really want to talk to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you didn't really want to talk to anyone for a while, but yeah, when we got that, when we got that, yes, it was like, okay, like, this is what Taylor's been talking about. Like, you know, there's, here's people that, that recognize the problem. And, uh, yeah, it really felt like a home run. Even it, it, it wiped out all the nose, you know? Yeah. Now, uh, one other thing to point out back to that house of the bucks on it, and, and we'll kind of speed through this cause it didn't end up working out, but Taylor, you had like a friend of a friend who knew those people and through a phone call, we were able to get a hold of them and they said that they would be okay with us, us hunting there, but I had to go back and talk to the guy. And so I went back and I knocked on the door again and he never answered. And then I waited outside and then I went back again and they never answered. And now it's like 3.30 or 4 or something. I don't know. It was pretty late and we we're down to just not a whole lot of time left before trying to hunt that night. And we were trying to get in a hunt. Um, and so I ended up just bailing on that spot and deciding to go and hunt a spot that you had gotten permission on, um, previously, that would be a good one for us to get into quick since we didn't, uh, we had to still get some paperwork taken care of on the place that I got permission on. Um, so, so that was how we were going to try to end up the night was just to go to this new spot. I'd never been to before you drove us down there and just kind of said like, Hey, here's the access point. Um, go for it. Here's your property lines. Um, and this spot was, was actually a little more normal feeling than a lot of the other places that we saw. A lot of the places that knocked on the doors, um, doors of, um, this was kind of a, I don't know. How would you describe this tale? Like a, like a, just a big brushy bottom drainage kind of area where there was houses up high. And then this is like a low area where just nobody was going to build. Right. 
Yep. Yeah. So once I ran you through the gauntlet, I actually could take you to some properties that are really hunted. And um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a big kind of floodplain with a lot of houses up on the high ground. And then that land in the middle of there that you were hunting on is just undevelopable, but it's like super brushy, a lot of like thickets and poison ivy and sumac, I think, uh, Justin. Holy out. Uh, huh. <laughs> Hell, so some gnarly at bottom. I'm sorry. I should give you more of a heads up. Um, <laughs> but I, to be fair, I did not know where you were going. So we wanted it to be not like a guided hunt, more like a, you know, Mark figures out where to go. And so I just said, Hey, park here and, and go in. And I should have warned you about the, uh, the CIA operative that lives next door that was uh, <laughs> figuring out phone numbers, texting people randomly. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just a big brushy floodplain and, and that spot is fantastic because if you think about how the water flows again, our analogy about where to find deer, like they're all getting pushed into that area from everywhere around there. Right. And if you even looked at that spot and zoom back out, you'd see that it's a giant crossroad of a crossing. I mean, that's one of the better hubs in the area that I hunt. And there are just tons and tons of deer in there including a couple pretty good bucks. And I think you saw one that night, didn't you? Yeah, yep. I, I did. And and so, you know, we, we, we parked and going in there, I remember keeping in mind the two main points that you had been preaching to me over and over again, which was one was think about how the water is going to flow, you know, the metaphorical water. And then number two, but most importantly was the bubble. So I, I was looking at this stuff on the map and I'm looking at this thick brushy bottom and right in front of me and I'm thinking, okay, I could get right into the middle of this. I could be thinking about what my wind's doing and, and push to the opposite side. But I thought, man, I don't want to breach the bubble. I don't, I don't know where the bubble is cause I've never been here before, but I, you know, figured I need to be a little bit more conservative than not. So I tried to find as decent of a place as I get to without diving deep into this place because they, they could be better anywhere, anywhere in there. And I remember thinking like the main things that I thought I could work off of were that there was these, there was this ridge that ran on the neighbor's property and two points that dropped down off of that. And I've envisioned that, okay, hypothetically, I bet you there could be oaks up on those ridges and there could be acorns up there. So I thought, all right, there very well could be deer either bedded up on those points and that are dropping down into the bottom to get to the opposite side. Maybe there's food over there. So this might be a place that they're dropping down to, or it could be the opposite. Maybe deer come for the other way and they might be going up those ridges to feed. So I thought, okay, if I can be tight to that, I might be able to intercept that movement. Secondly, there's a Creek. And I remember thinking to myself, all right, let's see if I could find a Creek crossing. And if I could be hunting where there's a Creek crossing and those points and what looks like the edges with really good, thick bedding kind of stuff, that might be three different potential, you know, movement lines of movement that I could take advantage of. Those are the things that I was trying to key in on with, with just a very, uh, bird's eye view of what I was dealing with, having looked at the map and walked in like 70 yards or something. We didn't go very far in, but I found those three, three things lining up and I thought, okay, I think this is worth, you know, trying. So, you know, we got set up, Justin was in one tree and me and Chase were in another. And sure enough, like an hour before dark or something like that, um, Justin was actually the first one to see him because of your angle. 
he was there was this really nice buck coming down that creek and he got to the creek crossing he came all the way to the creek crossing but was on the other side of it so he was on the one side and he was at 40 yards and if he crossed the creek where the crossing was towards me he would have been to 30 and i'm like man this is going to work out so perfect i can't believe i we nailed it like this is great he's going to come in at 30 and and i was going to take a 30 yard shot in in this scenario um and then he just never crossed. And he that's totally, totally fine there because that place is humongous and there is enough buffer there that a 30-yard shot's fine. Yeah. Yeah, never never presented itself though because instead of crossing, he instead turned up that point and worked up the point probably up to Oaks or something up in there and and we never saw him again. I tried some grunting and he he looked but wasn't having it. But he was he was a nice, you know, mature buck. I mean, I was stoked to he see him. He was a good deer. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't ask for anything better than that. But what I was surprised he was by out is there today. I, really? I got some cell phone. Yeah, some cameras uh, out there, and he was walking around today. I saw him, so no I might way. go shoot him when I get back from Ohio. The <laughs> <laughs> Kenyan buck. <laughs> That's awesome, man. <laughs> He's asking for it. Um, that was an encouraging first hunt. I was like, man. I mean, saw a shooter buck first night. This is great. And so we went back in there that next morning. Yeah. Uh, didn't end up seeing anything i don't think right justin i don't think we saw any deer that yeah time. is that right we didn't see anything now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com.
com slash meat eater. So it should be pointed out that I forgot. We need to explain a little bit about what you alluded to, Taylor, which was the neighbor. So we that 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 night that I just described when we hiked in and we were setting up our trees, you putting up our sticks and saddles and stuff. As I was getting up in the tree, I could see our vehicle parked off the side of the road and a truck pulled up behind it and then drove away. And then came back later and parked there for a while. And I'm thinking, oh, man, someone's messing with our stuff or someone's freaking out. They're going to call the cops or call their neighbors or who knows what. And I don't know, half hour later or something, uh, Justin, it was you, right? You got a text message? Yeah, I did. And and what the text message just said, like, hey, what are you doing here? Your truck's on my neighbor's property or something? Yeah, he's like, <laughs> are, you hun- are you hunting right – like?" I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was like, uh, okay, big brother definitely knows. Yeah. It was freaky. Yeah. Or something and the neighbors does not like it. We were were very perplexed by how this person had gotten Justin's phone number. Um, and we're thinking like, man, is this guy like in the CIA and he pinged our cell phones or something? And like being, being in this area, your mind jumps to all sorts of crazy conclusions when you're around. Um, and hearing some of the stories you've told us, Taylor, about the crazy things that go on out there. I was thinking, man, we've got like, uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know what I thought, but it ended up being that there was a luggage tag that could be seen through a window, <laughs> yeah. and that's how. Yeah, it, I, I was assuming so that like cool. my family, I was assuming my family was being swept away in a white van uh, at the very moment that I was getting that text. But it turned out that I just happened to have uh, a luggage tag pressed against the window that had my phone number on it. So that was quite the relief. <laughs> a much more simple explanation. Well, it was weird. It was weird because I sent that. You guys sent me a screenshot of the text, and I I looked up the number in my phone, and I realized it was the neighbor. I quickly sent him a text and said, "Hey, you know my buddies are down there hunting." Um, and I said, "Hey, like, how did you get his number?" And he said his response was like dot 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 past life, and I was like, "Yeah, oh okay, <laughs> not gonna fraud there." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But then we found out that there was a luggage tag, and I'm like, "Oh, dude, come on, don't make yourself seem cool, like like that cool." <laughs> <laughs> or maybe maybe he didn't look at the luggage tag. Maybe he really did do some sneaky covert stuff. You know, I don't know. Yeah, we'll never know. He's probably listening to this phone call right now. Maybe just laughing. About <laughs> yeah, it. he could be. Oh man, <laughs> definitely kept us on our toes that day. But uh, but yeah, next day didn't see anything. So midday decided, okay, we had our paperwork done at the spot that I'd gotten permission on. So we we're gonna head there. Um, I'll kind of fast forward significantly now because we don't have a whole lot of time left. Um, but we went to that place. Um, had like just the same kind of deal. There was like landscapers everywhere and there was neighbors pulling in and out. And this proper is very narrow. Like it was right along two roads. It was just a long skinny piece that had road frontage on half of it and, um, just wasn't a lot to work with. So didn't have a deer on the backside. Yeah. The neighbors had deer fencing. So like, like kind of nylon netting, like kind of plastic netting that was maybe like six, seven feet high or something to try to keep deer from going in and feeding in their yard. Um, 
interestingly, that first night, the only deer we saw were in their yard inside the deer fence. <laughs> <laughs> that's our, that's how that works. Uh huh. But um, but yeah, it, it was cool to go and hunt the place that you know I'd actually knocked on the doors and got permission on myself and just didn't see the activity I thought we were going to see. Um, it was, it was across the road from some really good looking stuff. So I thought for sure there was going to be deer piling off of the neighboring property, crossing the road and feeding on all the acorns that were in the stuff that we could hunt, but didn't happen that night. That was basically what I was doing was, was hunting, um, uh, basically thinking about the whole flow of movement situation. What we had there was that there was this long skinny property, as I described, and there was a bunch of oak trees in it. And so there was tons of acorns. And then the neighbor, as we just mentioned, had this deer fencing. So the whole length of the property had deer fencing along the edge. And any deer that wanted to get from the good thick cover across the road to other good thick cover on the other side of that person, uh, that other neighbor's home had to go around the outside of that deer fencing in between that deer fencing and a cul-de-sac. Um, never thought I'd say those words, but, um, I found I found this funnel, what I thought would be a, th- a funnel, between the end of this yard with the deer fencing and the calder sack where there's a little gap crossing a driveway and then leads into another draw with a bunch of good cover. So we set up on that side of the property to catch any movement funneled that direction while also hopefully taking advantage of deer feeding on those acorns. Didn't happen the first night. Went back in that next morning. Saw a bunch of does coming like they were going to do that, but I think our wind swirled and blew out that group. I don't know. There was like 15 deer or something in that group. There was a ton of does. Yeah. Bunch of deer coming through there, um, but they buggered. And then we had a a six-point buck, had a a year-and-a-half-old buck come across, crossed out of the cover, crossed the road, came into our spot, and did exactly what I was hoping these deer would do. And he came walking right to the base of my tree. And... I was thinking in the moment, like, first I was like, all right, I'm going to shoot him. Because I thought maybe he was like a two-year-old, six or eight or something. So I drew back. And then as soon as he got close and I had my bow, and and I I think, I'm trying to remember what the order here was. Uh, I think that as I was drawing back, I was thinking in my head, like, oh, man, he's a year and a half old. I can't shoot this buck. But I got to full draw, and he's right there at like five yards. And I had like a back and forth, like, should I take this deer? Should I not take this deer? Like, I haven't shot a year and a half old buck in like 15 years. Um, you know, just a personal goal thing, but I've been trying to kill mature bucks. And it'd been a long time since I was in a situation where I thought about doing something different. But then I had like a thought, like, man, maybe I should take this deer. Like, we're trying to help control deer populations. Uh, we're trying to show how to do this kind of thing. So I should shoot it. But then I was like, ah, but. I don't really want to shoot this deer. And, and all this went through my mind in like five seconds. And and ultimately I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, so I let down and he just walked past and went on and, and retrospect, I don't know, maybe I should have shot him. Um, maybe not. I don't know I, what, I, what I told myself, what I've told myself many times in different scenarios, but other way, other times is that if you ever are on the fence about shooting a deer, if like, if you don't 100% want to do it, regardless of what the reasons are, like, don't do it. So for me, it's been either I'm 100% going to do it or not at all. Um, so I'm okay with that. But Absolutely. In, unless a deer makes you go, ooh, like I'm going to shoot him, if you have to talk yourself into it or convince yourself, you should not shoot that deer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's kind of my rule of thumb, even though you are correct that, you know, we're doing management, and, and if you wanted to shoot it, there's no problem. 
shooting a year and a half old deer in the in the suburbs because that's one less deer to breed um, and potentially get hit by a car. But at the same time, you know, if if you're not excited about it, then don't do it because at the end of the day, that's really what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, it was a tough one, but um, but I felt like you know after it happened, I I, I felt I felt fine with what I did. It was the right call, and we got the only thing was that we got. You know, after that hunt, we were basically out of time. That was our last day. We had one more hunt that evening. So we really only had two and a half days to hunt. Um, Now that I think about this, because we had spent, you know, so much time on the front end, you know, kind of getting the education with you and then going through and getting permission and and all that just took a lot of time. So um, ended up just having that last night hunt. And so I just said, okay, last chance. Let's go back to the very first place we went, which was that property that we met the landowners on, and they had the does feeding in the yard, and you were hunting that first night with us and had the close call, and I thought, man, that sure seems like a a slam dunk, and I texted with you and talked with you, and you thought the same thing, so we thought, okay, it's our last chance, try to shoot a doe, that's our best chance. So snuck back in there, and I decided to hunt a slightly different different spot not dramatically i think i just shifted like 40 yards over um but shifted down closer to the other edge of the yard where we could shoot down to where those last does came through that you couldn't get a shot at because they're a little bit too far away um so we got set up chase and me were in one tree justin was in another and Hmm. How did everything go here, Justin? I think the first deer we saw were on the neighbors across the ravine up on the hilltop feeding in the yard. And then those deer dropped down the valley and came across and actually fed into the yard that we were hunting. But they crossed the yard, two of them, one of them disappeared, but two of them crossed the yard and went to the other neighbors and fed out of range. And they kind of continued at like, I don't know, 70, 80 yards, 90 yards, heading off the other direction. There was one mature doe and then like a yearling or something with her. And when she got out of our yard into the other yard, like she was definitely not going to come my way. Um, I started doing like a fawn in distress call. Just, you know, just kind of using my mouth to make the sound that I think that I've heard in the past that a fawn might make that kind of, <clears throat> and, um, Sure enough, she turned and stared and turned and stared. And then I don't remember exactly how long it was, but she eventually turned and started coming back our way. Um, And over the course of, I don't know how long this was, maybe 10 minutes, maybe longer than that, that whole encounter, 15 minutes, she, she slowly worked her way back towards us. And then when she started, she got back into our yard and then came out into the open, was like crossing the open yard to the other side towards me. That's when I was like, okay, wow, this is, this is actually going to happen. Um, what were you thinking at that moment, Justin, when she turned and started coming back? Well, I was like, I couldn't believe that she is actually doing it, but I think she seemed like she was on edge a little bit. And I remember her taking her time. Uh, she had that young one behind her and, but she, you know, she didn't just like feed across. She could, it was like, she was looking for whatever was making that, that distress call. And, um, so I think she was on edge, but I'm like trying to calculate from my tree, like, was she, you know, man, is she like in his shooting range? Cause uh, you know, I know we were trying to stay pretty close and, um, 
but then when I saw you draw back, I was like, man, like, here we go. Like, this is going to happen. And she continued to work across. And, uh, yeah. So I, I was, I couldn't believe it worked. That's what I kept thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was kind of thinking the same thing. She came across the yard and what happened was that she, <laughs> it looked like she was going to come right into 20 yards. And so I remember she was going to go behind one set of branches. And I thought to myself, all right, this is my chance to draw. As soon as she goes behind these branches at this angle, if she continues on, she'll step out right around 20 yards and I'll have my shot. So as she's walking through the branches, I draw back. But instead of of stepping out and continuing the way she originally was going to go, I thought in my mind, she stopped behind the branches and it seemed like forever. I don't remember how long it was, but I was at full draw a long time. And then she started moving again, but her angle was angling off further away. And so she went behind a tree. I'm stuck at full draw. And that whole time, I don't know. I think you went back and looked, wasn't like a minute and a half or two minutes or something that I was at full draw. Um, the whole time I'm like, I need to draw down. I need to draw down. Like, this is not, I'm not like, I'm just barely holding on, you know? Um, but I just couldn't, I just did not see a way I could get drawn down without this doe boogering out of there. Cause she definitely was, you know, on edge. She knew something was going on. And so I just kept at full draw. I remember, I believe that I remember, you know, I wasn't anchored anymore. I was just kind of like holding the bow back and just trying to relax in some kind of way. And just like, all right, just wait, just wait, just wait. Like, don't like there's no shot right now it's just a matter of holding it back and then as soon as as she starts moving again you can get back get anchored in you'll be good and sure enough she did start to move she moved behind this tree i got back in the shooting position and anchored and i had ranged earlier that day this little opening on the other side of this tree and so i knew that she was going to step out somewhere between 20 and 25 yards and so i thought if she comes out in this opening it's 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 probably a shot i can take and sure enough, she stepped out there. I remember thinking, all right, I bet she's like 23, 24, 25 yards, something like that. And, and I put it behind her shoulder and, uh, and let it, let it rip. Um, and for the sake of time, I'll describe this scenario quickly. The shot felt decent other than the fact that I just had been holding a long, long, long time, but I felt like I was in the right spot and I didn't feel like I flinched or did anything crazy. Um, but when I saw her run off, she ran off like 80, 90 yards. And then I saw her disappear behind a big clump of trees down in the bottom of a ditch. And I never saw her come out the other side. So I'm thinking, man, I bet you she went down right there. Like she's gotta be down right there. And we waited till dark Went down there, looked at the arrow, and the arrow didn't look as good as it should have. Did not look like a double long. There wasn't a lot of blood. There was a little bit of like meaty stuff on it. Taylor, you swung by, stopped by, took a look at it, kind of walked me through the different things you think about when recovering a deer in this kind of scenario. Picture brand, a few things, and I think you felt the same way. The arrow didn't look great. Um, so we decided to wait, I don't know, a couple hours, right? I think we waited a couple hours. Um, and then we were going to take up the trail. Uh, I got to ask you, Taylor, you were so kind as to drive over to check out the arrow and chat with me with your wife in the car on your way to date night. And, uh, 
didn't seem like she was super thrilled that we were doing that. Did how much trouble <laughs> how much trouble did you get in for that delay? <laughs> we had lots of expensive bottles of wine at dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so it was all okay. Yeah, she was fine after the first bottle, but the second bottle and the third bottle were just more of an insurance policy. Smart man. Um, <laughs> I was glad I was glad that I texted you and I did not uh, have to come out and help track because I don't know how helpful I would have been after uh, that much wine. But yeah, it, <laughs> she was not, she was less than uh, less than pleased to find out that we were actually not going to dinner. We were going to go over to a property real quick and uh, look at look at blood. But you know that's what kind of having some buddies uh, around for is really helpful in the burbs and having an extra set of eyes is really very invaluable yeah well I, I certainly appreciate it It was just great to be able to um go through you know taylor chamberlain's rules of uh of recovery in these settings and you know the important things were don't draw attention to yourself um you know hopefully this you know hopefully i did everything right in the front end so that we don't have a long track job but you know don't draw attention because in the middle of the night people seeing lights and stuff it could draw concern um, you know, if you do recover the deer, get it out of there quickly. Don't leave gut piles in, you know, places where they'll be terribly, um, conspicuous, uh, yada, yada, yada. So we cover all that kind of stuff. And then eventually I went back to track, track that deer down into that ditch up the other side. And unfortunately to a property line, uh, where we didn't have permission yet. And it actually, went it was going right to like the edge of two properties so i was like at a t-junction with the property we had permission on and then there's two other properties and the blood trail like went right to the corner of those two spots so me and uh, my producer went to go knock on those doors to get permission to go track and this is where the story gets particularly uh interesting i guess uh because <laughs> One door, one person answered the door and was like, oh, uh, well, okay, sure, whatever you got to do. No big deal. Um, now, you got to remember, this is by this time, it's after dark. We're in the suburbs outside of Washington, D.C. As you described, Taylor, people that live out here don't want to be bothered. They're not, you know, they don't want people around. Now it's dark and someone's at their door with a flashlight. Um, so this guy handled it well, but the other person did not handle it well. The other person, you know, got to the door and you had their spotlight on me. Um, and, and I'm trying to make myself as unthreatening as possible. Like my hands are visible. Um, I have a flashlight, but I'm not pointing at their eyes. I'm like pointing in my direction more so, so they can see me clearly. Um, and you know, I stand away from the door. So like, I'm not right up in their grill. Um, you know, cause I know this could be like an uncomfortable situation for a homeowner. So I'm trying to think of anything I can do to seem less threatening but this person won't even open the door. He just presses his face against the glass and he's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you here? Um, and I said, ah, I'm so sorry. You know, here's the situation. And I explained that, you know, I have, I'm hunting on your neighbors. I have permission to be hunting there. Uh, got a shot of the deer, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just, just kind of try to quickly explain what's going on and explain that, you know, was hoping to get permission to, to continue tracking the deer and also just let you know, like why you're seeing lights back there. And immediately the guy's like, I'm calling the cops. I'm calling the cops. I'm like, you don't need to call the cops, sir. I've just, you know, I, this is what I just wanted to explain what was going on. And if you don't want me on your property, we, we won't do that. I just wanted to, you know, respect your wishes and, and explain the situation. And he just kept saying, I'm calling the cops. I don't care. I'm calling the cops. You can't come on my property. You can't come on my property. I'm like, okay, hey, 
all right, I'm not, I'm not going to come on your property. No need to call the cops. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get out of your hair. So we leave and go back to the property we're hunting, go back to the truck, kind of unload any last gear. And we said, okay, well, let's go track to the property that we do have permission on. And sure enough, that ended up being where the doe went. So we follow the blood in that property. And unfortunately, the blood trail at this point had really diminished. It had been decent. I mean, it had never been a ton, but we were able to follow it across where we did a permission onto the new property. And then we got to like drop here, a little drop there, nothing. We're doing circles. We're doing circles. We're doing circles. Um, and at this point, you know, based on the arrow and just the drop, 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 it was like, okay, this, this deer, either we're going to find it dead right away, or this was like a flesh wound based on like the meat on the air and everything. But I was still, you know, having hope. And then all of a sudden I see these lights pull up, cars pulling up, lights pulling up on the neighbors. And I just knew right away. I'm like, they called the cops. And sure enough, here come, <laughs> here come big flashlights coming our way. And a couple cops came over and, uh, you know, want to know what the heck was going on. So, um, my producer was there with us. So this is our, 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 our buddy Andreas was out there with us too. And he's like, let me, let me take care of this. And he's got like all of our paperwork. He has our, our filming permits and our permission slips and all the stuff that shows that we're doing what we're doing legally and everything. So he went over there and the cops talked to him and had us explain what we were doing and what was going on and explain what we told the neighbors and why we stopped at their house and so on and so forth. And it was like a very stressful situation in the moment. And we're all like trying to, you know, keep our hands up and like not up. But I mean, like, I just remember thinking like, don't do anything weird. Don't, you know, just let's just stand still. Let's just do nothing threatening. Let's not give anyone an excuse to like get overexcited because we're in the middle of the night. There's flashlights pointing all over the place and there's cops and everyone's stressed out and I'm upset and we're not finding the deer and Eventually, they let us go and continue our stuff. Uh, but to make a long story short, we were not able to continue tracking that deer much further. We found one little other drop of blood after that, and it was it was dried up and seemed at that point that, that this was uh, like a brisket shot, a super low shot. If I were to guess, what I think happened is that I must have dropped my, my arm, my bow arm. So on that shot, I was at full draw for so long that when I released, I must have came down a little bit low you know, just that arm being tired and I probably just hit super low, you know, on the belly or a little forward and low, something like that. And that deer got a flesh wound, bled some, but dried up and, uh, and she carried on her way and, uh, we dealt with the cops, couldn't find the deer, went back to the car, was super depressed and bummed out about it and, uh, and had to end end our trip on that low note which is a bummer after you know a lot of fun and excitement uh it was a bummer way to end it but i guess it was a a a really full circle look at what suburban and urban hunting can be like we had we saw a big buck we had a shot at a young buck we had a bunch of cool encounters with does we saw lots of deer in yards we saw a big buck in a yard we talked to landowners who liked us. We talked to landowners who hated us. We got permission on some places. We got a lot of no's from others and we ended up getting the cops called. I mean, it was, it was everything you could ever dream of, right? Taylor, we got it all. You got the full, uh, the full gauntlet thrown at you. It's amazing how unnerving having the cops called on you can be when you know that you're doing everything 100% by the book. 
Yeah. But for still, I mean, I probably have the cops called on me probably 50 times, you know, 40, wow. 50 times. And, um, you know, cause it's now I don't feel so bad. Yeah. But, but it, it, it never once have I been doing anything illegal or wrong. Right. I'm like, you know, and the cops come and, and it's kind of unnerving because a lot of the times the cops have never dealt with a hunter before either. And they're like, you know, when's deer season? I'm like, now, like, obviously, like, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, do people answer that differently? You know, I mean, they just don't, uh, they don't deal with it a lot either. And so it's kind of like an unknown for them, which makes it a little hairy. And, I don't know. It's very unsettling to have to deal with the police. And, um, but you know, like, unfortunately you're hunting a quarter acre or half acre or three acre lot, whatever. Um, still, even on that three acre lot, there's only like a very small buffer on the fringe that is where, where the bubble overlaps with where you can actually hunt them. And like the deer end up off property a lot, even if you take a perfect mm-hmm. shot. And unfortunately, sometimes you have to knock on doors and get permission and deal with pissed off people and police and weird recoveries. And, you know, it's just, it's the nature of urban hunting, but at the end of the day, you know, would you say the juice is worth the squeeze? Like, was it a, was it that interesting of a hunt or would you prefer rural standard Mark Kenyon hunting spots? So I will be, don't ask him that. I'll be honest with you, Taylor. (laughs) I, I 100% see the appeal and I had fun and I'm really glad I did it, and I learned a ton, and it was really cool. But I will also say that I did find certain elements of it stressful, and um, like and all of them, like like many of them, <laughs> like many of them. <laughs> and so I think I prefer the Mark Kenyon way is what I'll say. I prefer my rural country spots where there's less stress, but I definitely see why this is so much fun for you and why it's a really cool thing that people can get out and do, especially if you live somewhere like this and it's not easy to get out in the country. Um, I mean, it's, it's sure a heck of a lot better than sitting on the couch. Um, and anyone who does this like you do and does it consistently and gets it done and has figured out how to navigate the red tape. I mean, that is no easy task. So, so kudos to anyone who's doing it. And and I, I want to second or I want to kind of qualify that of what by when I say it's no easy task. Like, yeah, it it's not easy, but it's definitely possible. Like, I mean, I was able to pull it off in a couple of days. Like, I was able to get permission. I was able to find places to shoot deer. I had opportunities at deer. So, it's it's also something to be said that like this thing is out there for you. It's accessible. It's available. If you've not been able to get out and hunt as much as you want because you have to drive a long ways, consider this because this kind of thing is available in a lot of cities and a lot of suburbs and a lot of neighborhoods, and it can be a really cool thing. So, so I, I saw the good and the bad, the, the fun and the stressful. And, um, and I, I think that, you know, expecting a little both is, is probably a good thing to have in mind. Yeah. I, I, I would think that if anybody lived in a rural area, and they chose to drive into a suburban area to hunt, there's something wrong with them, right? Because of the red <laughs> tapes and all this stress and just BS that you have to deal with. But 
if you live in a metropolitan area, you should not be driving. I mean, you, know, you can drive wherever the heck you want to hunt, but there are ample hunting opportunities hidden right under your nose that you probably are overlooking. And so if you're a guy who really wants to get out more, I mean, that's how I ended up hunting in the suburbs. I, you know, my family lives in Northern Virginia. Um, I came back there after college. I was really bummed out because I was not able to hunt. And then I slowly kind of realized that this hunting gold mine uh, that I was sitting on top of in terms of quantity and the length of the season. Like, yes, it is very stressful. There's a lot of stuff uh, that is tough to deal with. You know, right now as we're recording this, I'm in Ohio and I'm like really, really, really enjoying being able to drive out to a farm and go out to a property and just hunt wherever I want. Um, but you know, that's amazing. And I would take that 10 days out of 10 if I could, but you know, if you want to go hunt before work and then drive into the office, like I do all the time, like that, that's where urban hunting comes in. So there are these amazing opportunities in front of you and, and all it takes is a little bit of hard work to kind of get up to the top of the hill there. And then it's pretty smooth sailing from there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to say like it, you know, there, it does kind of, you know, there's part of it that does feel like we've kind of shed a bit of a negative light on it. But I think too, like some of the stress that we um, were having was coming, you know, we're, we're diving into a community, right? We're coming out of like where, what we're used to here and just like going into DC and trying to knock on doors and we're immediately caught off guard by just like gates and cameras and this and that. But like, yeah, like you're saying, uh, if, if that's your community, then, you know, it's definitely right there for you. And it probably, you probably won't have this, the amount of stress that we did because the the shock value isn't there for you like it was for us. So, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't want to discourage anyone from trying this either. Definitely. Definitely. It was a hell of an experience. I'm really glad I did it. And I do still have like a craw in my, I don't know what the saying is, but I've got a something that makes me want to go back at some point and get the job done. Um, so, I'm not writing off the possibility of me showing up at your door again, Taylor, and saying, damn it, I'm going to get a deer. <laughs> <laughs> the door's always open, man. Come on by. Well, I can't thank you enough, man. Um, you were the consummate host. It was You were a great teacher. It was so much fun to get to spend some time with you and learn your ways of doing this stuff out there and getting to explore your neck of the woods. And uh, just, just thank you again, just uh, over and over. And thank you, Justin, for for dealing with me and dragging along behind me, everything and doing all these crazy things we do. It was, it was a lot of fun guys. My pleasure guys. That's for sure. Well, Taylor, real quick before we go, where can people learn more about this kind of hunting? You've got a lot of different stuff you're putting out there, classes, YouTube videos. Where would you point people towards if they want to learn more from you about how to do this whole urban hunting thing? Yeah, check out. So I'm on Instagram as Urban Bowman. Feel free to check me out. Um, I have a, uh, a podcast and YouTube series on uh, Hunt Urban and our podcast is called Hang and Hunt. And I actually partnered up with the Seek One guys who are the only other guys I know that have been doing this as long as I have. 
Um, and we went through and created what we call our masterclass, which is a uh, tip to tail, full on how to do everything urban hunting from our literal word to word pitch, everything uh, online. So you can Google that and check so inclined and, and go down the rabbit hole of all things urban. Love it. All right, gents. Well, thanks again. And uh, let's wrap this up. All right. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, let me leave you with a couple plugs. Number one, if you're looking for any gift ideas, if you're looking for anything for your friends or family here with Christmas coming up, head on over to the Meat Eater store. We've got all sorts of gear that we're selling now, merchandise, some of our favorite partner gear. Like We now have our tethered Phantom Saddle that I love. We can sell that now on the Meat Eater site. We've got the Timber Ninja climbing sticks that I swear by. Those are available now. A whole bunch of other stuff. Wired Hunt t-shirts. Check it out. Good gift ideas out there. Also, the show that we're filming, that we did film earlier this year and that we are releasing this year. So this is different than the DC hunt I just described. But one week in November is the show that I was co-hosting that you can watch this year on the Mediator YouTube channel. Check that out for the story of my Iowa hunt, as well as what Spencer Newharth, Tony Peterson, and Clay Newcomb were at up to across the country. So check it out. Best of luck out there in the woods if you are still hunting. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.